It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is the new leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats, Alex Cole Hamilton. We spoke on Friday, just a few days ago, First thing in the morning on the day that he was elected. So this is the first full interview that he recorded uh, since becoming the new leader of the Scottish Lib Dems. More on that in a second. Don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, particularly if you have a story of a an interesting, unusual, even mundane encounter with a politician, or if you've seen them in an unexpected place, like when you've gone on holiday. Luke got in touch um, and was inspired to get in touch by the Peter Kyle episode, as a lot of you were. In fact... There's three recent episodes, Peter, Carl, Pat McFadden and Tom Tugendhat. I've had so many messages about. Um, so they were just incredible people to speak to, all in their own unique way. Um, so I'm pleased that those uh, ones have gone down um, so well. Uh, but Luke is currently um, about any day now to uh, have completed a master's in cell biology in Manchester. So Luke, on behalf of everyone who listens to this podcast, I'm sure, uh, congratulations. He says, apart from once... Briefly seeing Alistair Darling outside the Midland Hotel in Manchester on my way to work the moon under the water, I've not really met many politicians in real life, but I might be able to win the most nerdiest place to have listened to your show regularly. I often listened or re-listened to shows while conducting experiments in my master's research project, so the likes of David Owen and Liam Byrne kept me company, while I studied a type of cells circadian rhythm i think i've pronounced that right the process is controlling the daily cycles inside the body and its disruption is linked to many non-transmissible diseases like why asthma attacks are more common in the morning wow given the nature of your show i feel celebrating geekery is part of what it's all about i would be curious if there were other nerdier places people have listened luke firstly great to hear from you secondly congratulations on your impending masters thirdly a great idea for a new reason to interact via email. So what is the nerdiest place you have listened to the show? Politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to all of you who've left a review on iTunes. I know it's admin. I know you think, oh, do I really have to do it? But if you do it, 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 it can change the world, man. So it just, well, it can change the podcast charts. So if you enjoy the show, you can... You can get you can just go on iTunes and just leave a review and that that helps. Um, secondly, of course, the show is returning to the stage. Uh, I felt terrible announcing that on the Tom Tugendhat episode, which was such an emotional episode. Um, but I can talk about it with, with a bit more, uh, you know, uh, uh, gusto, I guess, on, on this episode. So Tom, uh, so the political party is returning to the stage on the 27th of September. I have a brand new residency in the West End. Which is so exciting. Obviously, the Duchess Theatre is beautiful. And the first guest of this brave new era is Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester. So that's on the 27th of September. It's every fortnightly now. It used to be every month. So it's every fortnight, uh, every other Monday from the 27th of September at the Duchess Theatre. The link, either go to mattford.com slash live or 
I've helpfully put the link to that first show in the blurb of this. So wherever you're listening to this, you scroll to the notes and there is a link there to get your tickets. That's already selling very well, I'm delighted to say. So that's uh, just so great to be back at a beautiful new home, uh, the Duchess Theatre in the West End, and with a fantastic first guest. He's never been on this show before. Andy Burnham, which is incredible, really. Um, so what a great place and a great debut. One of the most prominent politicians in the country, one of the most powerful Labour politicians in the country. Uh, and someone, obviously, who's been very outspoken, who has had uh, his run-ins with both the Westminster and the Holyrood government. So I'm sure there'll be plenty for him to say. And it's Labour Party Conference Week. So... My word, what what a night that's going to be. What a what a yeah, wonderful return to the stage the political party is going to have. Monday the 27th of September, the Duchess Theatre in the West End with Andy Burnham. Now to return to Alex Cole-Hamilton, the newly elected leader of, uh, elected unopposed, we should say, but nevertheless, he's the new leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats. Before we get into this, uh, a trigger warning for what you're about to hear. There are parts of this um, that are quite difficult. Alex... Um, unwittingly witnessed a suicide in Edinburgh a few years ago and we talk about that and the impact on him so fair warning we do talk about that um there's also a moment where uh he, he gets emotional about his his, his daughter um uh, he, he basically had to save his daughter's life at one point and and again that is that is quite an emotional part of the show so just so that you know those things are coming up um the rest of it is, is is fascinating about the Scottish Lib Dems, about the Lib Dems more widely, about how that party cuts through in Scotland and just in the UK in general, uh, about Scottish politics and about some of the other lighter moments that he's had in his life. Um, he's known uh, as one of the funnier politicians in Scotland. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that. And um, there's the story about he, how he and I first met and a particular award that he uh, collected um, a few years ago. So this is a, a brilliant, wide-ranging interview um, and covers some of the things that have happened in Scottish politics in, in, in a bit more detail. Um, and whilst it has its lighter moments, there are those two big, serious moments, so just so you know. But I began by congratulating Alex on being the new uh, leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats uh, and, well, telling him that he must be very proud. Oh, thank you, Matt. No, I'm over the moon. This is such a proud day for me, and I'm just so excited about what we can do with the party. And you take over from Willie Rennie, who's a, a legend in, in Scottish and UK politics. How um, how do you sort of manage that? Do you do you try and depart from what Willie did? Do you try and continue what he was doing? Oh, Matt, well, Willie is one of my best friends and he has taught me a lot and he has the most recognisable smile in Scottish politics. And there's no question that, at, you know, our lowest ebb and in our darkest hours, Willie kept the party alive. And he did that with his mirth, with his humour, but also with a hard edge of a serious message behind that. So there's no question they are very big shoes to fill. But I'm just honoured to get the opportunity to try and do that and to take the party forward. And where... What happens with the Scottish Liberal Democrats then? Because it seems from down here, and, and maybe I'm wrong, that in Scotland, obviously the SNP are by far the most popular party and by far, the, you know, in terms of seats and vote share and everything else. I mean, Labour have struggled to get into the debate really since 2014. It's become a, a constitutional debate between no on the one side embodied by the SNP and yes on the other Partly embodied by the Tories, just because they've been by far the most enthusiastic owners of perhaps the, the, the no argument. A bit by Labour and then just a sort of splintering. I mean, is Scotland, is Scottish politics big enough 
for the Scottish Liberal Democrats to be able to win more seats, to, to, to ever dream of governing at Holyrood? Well, I think it is. And um, I can evidence that by what happened last week in uh, by-elections outside of our held constituencies. We won two council by-elections. Remember, they're SDV by-elections, so much bigger wards. And nobody saw us coming. And that just goes to show that where we connect with people again, where they trust us again, then people back us in large numbers. And, and people you know, had written us off at the last election. We came back in our held constituencies with record-breaking results, some of the biggest scores that have been run up in political history in Scotland. So yeah, we've been squeezed. There's no question about it. But I do think that the people of this country are now hungry for something different, something new, because we've been trapped between two kinds of nationalism. That's the obviously the SNP's Scottish nationalism, but there's definitely the Brexit nationalism of Boris Johnson's Conservative Party. And if the choice boils down to those two things, everybody loses. So it's my, you know, my task is to earn a hearing again and try and get that message out there that we can just move on from this constitutional washing machine. And do you have an objective uh, electorally, like in terms of vote share or seats, do you say, right, by the next Holyrood election, I want us to have 10 seats or 20% of the vote or whatever? I, I wouldn't say at this early stage I have a number. I've just got the job today, but definitely progress and growth is what I want <laughs> I mean, to do. I was quite early. <laughs> yeah. Early <time. laughs> yeah. I mean, no question, because I, I got into politics to make a difference. It's very hard to do that from fourth or fifth place. And, you you know, I mean, I don't fear power. I don't hunger for power. It's not the main driver that gets me out of bed in the morning. But with power and being in government is something I think there's a noble ambition to go for because you get to change the world if you do that. And, and we didn't get into politics just to sort of cart from the sidelines. And there's so much of that in Scottish politics right now. So, yeah, I, I mean, I want to grow the party, but I need to earn a hearing. And, and I've shown that on the you know where I am sitting right now in my constituency of West Edinburgh I managed to convince people again to get them trusting us again believing us again I know how to do that I know how to win my challenge now is to replicate that around the country so this is happening at a similar exactly the same time as the the SNP and the Greens are announcing a, a coalition um if the Green members vote it through um is your is your best chance of governing in Scotland to, to be part of a coalition with Labour or with anyone else? And, and would you ever go into coalition with the SNP? Um, well, yes. I mean, coalition. Well, I'm saying yes to the idea that um, governing by coalition is is a way forward. I believe in in doing things together. But in terms of the SNP, uh, I, I find it very difficult to see any circumstances where that would work for the Liberal Democrats. And why? Because um, I am completely opposed to nationalism of any kind, not just the Scottish nationalism of the SNP, but the as I said earlier, the Brexit nationalism that comes not just with the Scottish Conservative, the UK Conservative Party, but the Scottish Conservative Party as well. They're both part of the problem. Every election, Matt, every election in Scotland in recent times now boils down to the point where every vote is either a mandate for a second referendum or the reason to block it, the only means of stopping it. That has become the full extent of public debate in this country and our citizens are suffering because of it. These two big parties the Tories and the SNP are part of the problem. So I struggle to see how I, we could any, ever reach terms or a situation where we would be part of a coalition with either of them. And how then do you squeeze Labour out? Because you can see if you go, right, OK, if I'm a voter in Scotland and the Constitution is the most important thing to me and I want independence, then SNP. And then you go, well, if, if I'm a voter in Scotland and staying in the union is the most important thing, maybe the Tories, but if I'm progressive, then Labour. And then... Where do you stand on trying to like carve out a third spot in in that no 
voting, you know, blob. Well, I, I think, you know, Labour and the Lib Dems actually speak the same language on a lot of things in Scotland. Absolutely. In fact, you know, Anas Sarwar is one of my closest friends in the parliament um, and we make very similar speeches on a, a lot of things. But there's a reason I'm not a member of the Labour Party. I mean, Labour, um, I, I think, have a penchant and certainly a tendency towards big centralising government. You know, the, the ID cards, um, they support the creation of a national care service, which is another big clunking bureaucracy at a time we actually need to empower our communities. Um, so there are clear differences. And I, I would say to any anyone in the progressive centre left of Scottish politics, you know, if you if you are worried about state intrusion in your life and the creep of big centralising government, which comes with Labour, um, then then we're your guys. And actually, I think we stand where a lot of people stand. Uh, but but I don't see I don't particularly see Labour as the enemy. I think we can do a lot together, and I look forward to doing that. Do you think in a way it would have been better for you to have Richard Leonard still in control of Scottish Labour and perhaps Jeremy Corbyn in charge of UK Labour? Because <laughs> you go, look, Labour, this is old Labour stuff, whereas now with Keir Starmer and Anna Sawa, people might go, oh, actually, they don't feel that kind of old Labour way. They don't feel like big centralising figures. In a purely Machiavellian sense, that might have helped my party, but I didn't want that at all for two reasons. Firstly, I've got a lot of friends in the Labour Party who were heartbroken by that period and who were devastated. And I know what it's like to see your party collapse and, and to feel that the votes and the support of the country ebbing away from you. And, you know, I, I think we've started to turn that around in Scotland in the Lib Dems. But um, the second reason is we actually need Labour to do well. I mean, there are certain... Um, constituencies of people and um, communities in this country that we, the Lib Dems, are still struggling to connect with. That's my duty as, as leader to, to uh, redouble efforts to do that. But we need a strong Labour Party um, to provide a progressive alternative, a pro-UK alternative to, to the Tories, because this can't boil down to a choice between Nicola or Boris, because if that's the case, everybody loses. And that's why, you know, I, I realise the Lib Dems are not yet strong enough to do that on our own. So we need partners in that enterprise. And that's why, you know, I'm keen for an ass to succeed and I'm, I'm keen for Labour to, to do better. Do you get the sense at all that voters in Scotland are, are looking beyond the constitutional debate, that they're tiring of it in any way? Because the SNP is still so popular. And when you look at the polling of yes versus no, it bobbles around sort of 45 to 55 in any direction. Um, are people still hugely animated by it? Or are people saying to actually whether it's COVID or whether it's something else. Because, you know, you talk about things like liberalism. I mean, in Scotland, there's been no ideological discussion beyond the union. There's been no talk of real left or right or libertarianism or, or liberalism, but no exploration of uh, ideology beyond are you yes or are you no? You are exactly right, Matt. And um, there is a muscle memory to politics in Scotland right now. It's all about the constitution. Everything boils down to that. Scottish ministers, SNP ministers, won't go to the opening of a crisp packet without calculating what that means for the bigger independence project. And everything is couched in those terms on the pro-UK side as well. And, and we need to be better than that. I always look, you know, with some admiration to the um to the alliance party in northern ireland and they naomi long who leads our sister party there has succeeded in breaking through in breaking out of uh, a nationalist stranglehold between the dup um and well and and all of those parties that have governed traditionally in northern ireland had been governing on that nationalist context and i think that we there's a model we can follow there 
But do you do you sense there's an appetite for it, or you know, this recent round of elections when you're on the doorstep, is it still the biggest thing on people's minds? Um, a lot of people just want to get past it. Um, enough, you know, for all the, the success of the SNP in the last election, um, we got to a, a situation where um, on the doorstep, people were, were actually saying, you oh, I'm going to vote SNP, not, not because I want independence, because there was a feeling of, you know, not wanting to change a wartime government, that we are in a state of national crisis, international crisis. Um, and people felt, well, I've, I've seen, I'm not a nationalist, I don't support independence. But Nicola has been on the news every day, you know, at lunchtime, she's told me what I needed to hear. I think I better just keep her in power just now. And actually the SNP pivoted to that two weeks before polling day, because they could see it was hurting them. The idea that this mandate for a second referendum was actually hurting them. Um, and that, I think it gives the lie to that suggests there's any kind of momentum behind independence. It certainly gives the lie to the idea that she, that Nicola has any kind of mandate for a second referendum because she muddied the waters about what people were voting for. Um, and I think that, yeah, people, people are tired of it. They just want to, um, to look to the business of government that get politicians working again on the, on the issues that matter to them. Nicola Sturgeon is a formidable opponent. I mean, you, you must wonder what on earth you've got to do to chip away at her popularity, at the, at the SNP government's popularity. She appeared in front of your committee during that the, during the salmon thing. Uh, all you look at the some of the appalling records on particularly drug deaths that have accelerated under the SNP, missed targets in health, uh, pulling Scotland out of international comparison leagues when it comes to education. So many things that you could point to and say. Well, this is a, a failing government that mired in this, you know, now psychodrama between its previous leader and its current leader. And yet, and yet, still way more popular than every other party in Scotland combined. And as an individual, one of the most popular politicians in the UK. I mean, what do you think it will take to, to remove Nicola Sturgeon? Well, you're absolutely right, Matt. There are warning lights blinking across the dashboard of public policy in Scotland. And you've named quite a few of them already. But there's also the missed climate targets, the two-year waits for child and adolescent mental health care, which is a national scandal and has been going on for years, um, the threadbare state of our police force. Um, the list goes on and on. And hospital waiting time. People are, are given letters that Nicola Sturgeon passed as a law when she was health secretary to guarantee that people would be seen in 12 weeks. They're still being sent letters saying you'll be treated in 12 weeks when there isn't a hope in how they'll be treated in 50 weeks and and this is the business of government that has been allowed to slide because of the constitution people i think will start to wake up to that if we get and i hope i hope that we can get past this sort of juggernaut of we need another independence referendum and boris johnson saying no and we just move past it and i think we we move past it by proving that nicola doesn't actually have a mandate we, we need to just get on with the business of government you know we need to put that recovery first. Um, and, and when that happens, people, the scales, I hope, will start to fall away from the 45% of people who still vote SNP and say, actually, you've been rubbish. You've been utterly rubbish as in government and we want something better. But she is perceived to be a, a, a strong leader and she benefits from a contrast with Boris Johnson. I mean, even her opponents would say she has skills as a leader um, with messaging, with... You know, obviously, there are a number of things that are in the SNP's favour and in, in Nicola Sturgeon's favour about, you know, who her opponents are, who they've been, the time in which she's governed. Um, but nevertheless, you, you kind of have to, you have to have an honest appraisal of what makes your uh, opponents popular. And she is 
a highly skilled political communicator, and that must make her very hard to hold to account. Oh, there's no question. She's formidable and um, and very precise. Um, just to go back to your point about the contrast with Boris Johnson, um, Boris Johnson, again, is a, a, an evidence of why the Conservatives are part of the problem, why we're stuck in the stranglehold, because they seem, the Conservative Party in London come up with innovative ways every week of driving people into the arms of the SNP. Yeah. Uh, whether, <laughs> uh, whether that's, you know, with cuts to, to foreign aid budget, the, the desertion of the Afghan people, you know, there are things that the Tory party do, which almost just, it feels like the sleeper agents working in number 10 for the SNP. Yeah. And, and, and again, it comes back to, it can't be seen as a choice between Boris and Nicola because everybody will lose if that's the case. But she has a Apart from Nicola. Apart from Nicola, but but uh, but she has her flaws and, and massive exposed flanks. And she has been able to keep this very shallow coalition of independent supporters. And they are a very divided team themselves. Let's remember that they are at war with each other, but they keep marching because she keeps you know, telling them or suggesting that this prize of independence is just over the hill, just over the horizon. There's a point at which I think half of that faction will go, well, hang on, you keep saying that, but we're not seeing it. So we're going to do our own thing. And that's sort of started to happen with Alba party. But, um, but yeah, she, I mean, she is the, the glue that keeps it together. And I think if she goes, then everything falls apart. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, the Tories doing everything they can to alienate voters in Scotland. <laughs> They're doing everything they can to alienate voters in every <laughs> corner of Great Britain, it seems at the moment with a mixture of incompetence and terrible decision-making. You know, they've, they've given huge opportunities, not just to Nicholas Sturgeon, but to Keir Starmer as well, and perhaps as well to the Liberal Democrats uh, across Great Britain and across um, Scotland. I, I interviewed Ed Davey when he became leader of the Liberal Democrats um, at UK level, and he said, actually, because I had this whole thing of a uh, similar proposition that I put to you, how, how do the Liberal Democrats carve out a space when there's a new Labour leader that's more attractive than, than his uh, uh, predecessor? But he said that actually the Lib Dems do better when Labour does well. And he pointed to the 1997 election. And, and actually, when Labour's more popular, so are the Liberal Democrats. It's actually it, it's one of those things that it, it seems totally counterintuitive. I think that's right. Um, I mean, there's, you could probably write a PhD thesis on why that's the case. Um, I think it's if people believe that there's an alternative, that they don't have to choose between two alternatives that they rather dislike anyway. And in the Scottish context, that's the Tories or the SNP. The irony is that this is this toxic battle that the, the SNP and the Tories are in in Scotland actually serves only those two parties. Nobody else wins out of that, but they've got very good at keeping that going. Um, and if we can break out of that, if we can show that there's a progressive alternative, and that might be the Lib Dems and Labour, then um, then you start changing people's minds and they start, well, actually, I can do something different. It's not at risk. And I think we might get to this age. I, you've got to believe, you've got to believe that this uh, last Scottish election was the last time, uh, the last act in this psychodrama of people being told you've got to use your vote either for independence or against it. And that's all we're voting on because so much more is at stake. And it's all about those public services that we discussed earlier, which have been allowed to, to to stagnate and to fall apart under the SNP because they've got their eyes only on one thing. And then, so for the Scottish Lib Dems, then uh, it, it, it's a, you're in such a strange position. How do you? I guess it's a repeat of a question I was, I was asking earlier. But how do you cut through? Like, do you? I mean, obviously Willie Rennie 
there's a there's a whole tradition in sort of modern Scottish politics, quite funny photo opportunities that the Lib Dems have kind of had to be slightly more jocular. I mean, Ruth Davidson did it as well. Um, is that the kind of is that a deliberate way to just kind of get attention away from the SNP and, and the Tories? Or is there is there an alternative? Do, do you do something else? Do you perhaps become more serious? Do you start making speeches on foreign policy and finance? You know, is there is there another way for the Lib Dems beyond the kind of funny stuff to get people's attention? I think to Willie's credit, you know, he captured the affection of the um, of the public with those photo calls. When I think about those photo calls, I think about there's a great film. I mean, Matt, I think you're a fan of cricket, but there's a brilliant film called Fire in Babylon, which is about the, the rise of the West Indian cricket side um, in the 1970s. And before the 1970s, they were seen as this sort of halftime entertainment that people really liked them. They were amusing. They were flamboyant, um, but they didn't win many trophies. And then they introduced the world to new kind of fast bowling and they started breaking jaws. And so I've I've sort of seen our period right now as as the kind of Calypso cricket that we've been the entertainment value for a while. Um, But I think it's time we started bringing on the fast bowlers. And that is about you know, using some humour, using some mirth, no question about it, because politics doesn't need to be dull, but actually connecting with people, going out to people's communities, making serious speeches about the things that really matter to them. So, you know, I'm not going to completely reinvent the wheel, but I, I think there is definitely now, uh, Willie has secured us a hearing uh, with the public. It's now time to take that seriously and perhaps be a little bit more serious in the delivery of that message. We first met at the Holyrood Awards, the Hollywood Garden Party, which is happening again in a few weeks' time. And I think you won the award, which is a great <laughs> event. Which is a great event. And, and, and I know what you're going to say. You won the award for a most flushable motion. That's right. That's a very funny entitled award for some... Can we, can we explain what that was for, what the motion was about? Yeah, go on. So, so it was a motion that asked the Scottish Parliament to congratulate a takeaway in my constituency for coming 10th in the Scotland Takeaway Awards. And, and the, reason, the reason we put that in, one of the things, I get a lot of work experience, and one of the things we asked one of the kids that came in from school, we always asked them to do Blame it. Blame it on a kid. Not at all. I, I, I always sort of kind of vet it, and I thought that was quite amusing, so I, lied, I, I submitted it. But it was, yeah, I think it made that takeaway, um, that it made their day to, to get recognised by Parliament for coming 10th. <laughs> but these are the equivalent of early day motions, aren't they? They're just That's right. motions that can be tabled by MSPs. Do you remember what sort of takeaway it was? It was, it, it's called the Sultan. Am I allowed to say that? Of course, it, yeah, other, yeah, yeah. Other, ta- other takeaways are available. There yeah, been, but at least uh, nine in, others that are better, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> they're in the East Craigs. They do a mean curry and also pizza and chips. So you can get everything there, actually. That's one of the reasons they came 10th, I think. And have you kept the award? Uh, yes. <laughs> it's on the shelf in our office toilet. <laughs> that's where, I guess that's where it belongs. But um, yeah, the point I was going to make about that, actually, it was a really fun night. But Oh, there was a point. Right, okay. Oh, yeah, there was a point, yeah. Which was <laughs> okay. that... As with all politics, from the outside, it can seem very ferocious, uh, particularly Scottish politics in the last few years, I think, certainly before Brexit came along. But actually, you know, the first one of those I hosted, I thought, oh, my God, these guys all get on. Now, obviously, they have their political yeah. differences and they are real and they are deeply held and they are serious. But it doesn't mean people can't 
sit on the same table as each other and have a laugh together. It was one of the most therapeutic events I've ever been to. Really joyous to see people who are used politically at each other's throats all laughing with each other, all getting on. And there is a there is a great side to po- Scottish politics, which is it does feel a bit more informal than Westminster and, the, and other parliaments. And there is a genuine affection and respect for each other there. That's true. Absolutely. And it's one of the things I love most about it is, and I call it the kind of green room mentality that, you know, before we go on stage at hustings during an election or on TV together or whatever, there's always tremendous banter. Um, and and you're always reminded that the counter, you see the counterpoint of yourself and your opponent. And the reason that people got into politics is probably the same, that they wanted to make a difference. They wanted to do right by their communities. Yeah, we've got different ways of achieving that but actually if you can see that then um you you can get on and you also recognize that you all go through the kind of same stress and the drama and the hilarity and the bizarre things that happen to you in your constituencies and you can share that and there's and 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 i think it makes life a lot more pleasant as a result of it so what got you into politics then and why the lib dems well, um, lots of things. I mean, I was a youth worker and I worked for, in a, for a children's charity for um, about 13 years. Um, and I think I got into politics as a cure for insomnia. And I got into politics, and I mean, what, what I mean by that is that um, some of the young people I was working with kept me awake at night in terms of their stories. Like there was a lad I met in a care home who had, by the age of eight, been through 37 failed placements in foster and residential care, and that he had massive trauma, attachment disorder, and loss. And nothing about government policy or what the parliament was doing was focused on his life or the lives of people like him. And it, as I say, it kept me awake at night. So that, that was a real motivating factor for me. But also, I just love people. I love community. And I love it when you see the best in community and you can help be part of that. And COVID's actually brought out the best in our communities. You know, people didn't just bolt their doors and hunker down. They came out in their hundreds and thousands. They volunteered at test centers. They um, delivered meals to people in isolation and they run errands for neighbors. I love that. And and for me, the the Lib Dems have always been a party of the community. Um, And it's it's also speaks to my values as a Quaker as well. So, I mean, I'm not particularly religious, but I am a Quaker by choice. And, um, And I think that, you know, that sense of um, equality and fairness and freedom, um, I only find in the Lib Dems, and that's why I've stuck with it all this time. And you couldn't get a better religion for Scotland because you Quakers literally make porridge. I mean, this is like... <laughs> this is that is true. And lots of chocolate as well. Yeah, exactly. I haven't heard that joke in years. That was brilliant. No, that is true, indeed. Porridge is, is what keeps me going. <laughs> I presume Quaker by birth. Your parents are Quakers, or was that no? No, no I'm Quaker by choice, not by no birth. Way. So I so chose. What, yeah, yeah, yeah. What an odd one to choose out of well, nowhere. And uh, um, so I think this comes back to the first Gulf War in like 1991 and I was um, I was 13, going on 14 when that happened. And, you know, I was a teenager, I was exploring lots of, you know, where I, what I felt about the world. And one of the things that really struck me was like, 
a lot of my mates were quite excited about the war and the the body count and things like that. And I I just found that repellent. It just, what do you mean um, excited? How, how do you mean? Well, it's just you know you, you you were just like wow, there's this sense we've never you know in our living memory we've not been through. Okay, we grew up with the Falklands, but we were all probably about six years old when that happened. But this was like oh wow, you know, deployment of jets and bombing and and when yes. you're when thirteen year old lads are like wow, that's that's exciting and something new and. And I just didn't get that. I was just utterly repelled by that. And it really upset me. And actually it triggered, um, I spoke to my mum and she'd been to Quaker meeting a few times and uh, she said, well, you might try these guys. So I went along and found they completely spoke my language. And I suppose I was quite radicalized then. And I, you know, I joined Greenpeace and CND and became a vegetarian. And um, a lot, you know, a lot of those values have stayed with me, but the Quakerism has certainly stayed with me. Um, again, you know, the great thing about Quakers is you don't have to be particularly religious. They, they're, the, the great thing is a very liberal viewpoint is that they're very plural. And just as long as you're willing to sit and, and be part of the meeting, you can believe what you like, but it is obviously rooted in Christianity. Um, and I guess I'm quite agnostic, but it, it still it still really speaks to me. Is there a connection between being a Quaker and being a Lib Dem? And I, I, and I mean, in a wider point that there's the Catholics and the Church of Scotland, the SNP yeah. and the Labour Party, you know, there's the big brands in Christianity and there are the yeah. slightly sort of niche brands in Christianity. And you've gone for for a kind of, you've gone Quaker in your religion. You've gone Lib Dem in <laughs> politics. Is there a kind of, yeah. do you prefer perhaps not being part of the big main attraction? Well, Martin Twain said, when you find yourself on the size of, side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. No, I, I mean, it's, it's generally just where my values are. I think the connection, if there is, uh, I mean, there are a lot of Lib Dems who are Quakers. Um, and perhaps it's got something to do with the penchant for socks and sandals, which both Quakers and Lib Dems <laughs> go for. Um, I have to say, for the record, that is not a fashion choice I engage with in public anyway. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, no, there's definitely, and sometimes, you know, it's hard for me to see where my Quakerism ends and my liberalism begins because they're, they're such a natural fit. And it's, a, it's about, and again, it's about um, forging alliances and, and cooperation with your neighbours and conflict resolution. And, and, and that's one of the reasons I'm such a passionate internationalist is because um, the European project has been a guarantor for peace. Um, if I think back, you know, my first speech in Parliament was happened on a particular anniversary um, for my family. That, that day, 100 years previously, my great uncle, who was a, a private in the first Canadian mounted rifles out of Saskatchewan, was killed along with 80% of his battalion at the Battle of Montsorel. And that sacrifice was matched by um, siblings of my grandfathers who died in World War II. And I, I think it's a success of the measure of the European project that I'm only the second generation in the recorded history of my family to never have to contemplate war with our European neighbours. And that is why I, I cannot, I just cannot get with the programme on the idea that borders are a good thing. You know, that, that borders and this, this, this sort of mythologising of ancient nations and statehood is where the direction of travel should be for the world. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So... The first Gulf War is, is obviously this moment for you that, that politicises you, that uh, oh, so many things come from that, that you, you, you realise you're a Quaker, eventually ends and you join the Lib Dems, it makes you a vegetarian. Had the first Gulf War not happened, I mean, surely if you're carrying those things around, eventually you would have, something would have kind of been the catalyst. But it, it, had history been different, perhaps, do you think your politics might have gone somewhere else? No, I, I, I think, you know, I, we're all products of our upbringing, aren't we? And I, um, I was born to a Canadian mother and a, um, a kind of half Welsh father, um, both of whom, she was a Canadian liberal. My dad um, had me delivering leaflets from Ming Campbell in 1987. I think that the, the seeds were already there. Um, and the way the conversations we had around the dinner table were, were on that level. So, yeah, I, I think that that was certainly the catalyst, but something else would have come along. And I'm sure, you know, that's just my makeup that's what i am and who i am so canadian and welsh background you were born in hertfordshire that's right and then you moved to st andrews when you're eight so your whole uh you know your whole identity is not just you're basically every british nation in in one guy but a whole international background as well that's right. Yeah, I come from many different places. And, and that's why this idea of statehood, you know, this nationalism is so alien to me. I mean, my backstory stretches the length of the M6 corridor because I lived in Lancashire for, into, for seven years before actually getting to, to Scotland. Um, but, but I consider myself a Scot. I mean, it's, it's funny when, when it comes to sport, because people will always say, you know, oh, are you going to back between Scotland and England in the mm-hmm. Calcutta Cup? That, there's no question for me. I back Scotland in that because, you know, I've lived here 35 years. My wife is Scottish. My kids are Scottish. And you're but trying to get I, elected in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> but, but at the same time, Matt, I make no secret of my passion for the English side when it comes to football, you know, and, and I, it was really backing England as, as we exchanged messages about that during the Europeans and um, and it's and it's great to back such a likable English side again and and you know I hope they go on to do great things in the World Cup uh, but I get I can edit this bit out for you if you want Alec this may not help <laughs> you in five years time I'm proud of my English heritage and I think that you know that I mean there are people who actually believe I can't be part of Scotland's future based on where I'm from I had the police come to my office on an unsolicited basis and saying we're a bit worried about the anti-English hate crime you're getting on Twitter. What? Yes, no, it's true. I when mean, was I, this? this is about three years ago. And um, the police, they said, you know, it, the police came and they said it is hate crime and you could, you could lodge it, uh, uh, you know, 
charge them or, or or go after them if you wanted. I said, listen, you know, firstly, I hadn't seen it because I'd muted a thousand people on Twitter. So they, yeah. I, my, my, Twitter, my Twitter feed is very zen. Yeah, I thought so you weren't I, replying to my tweets. <laughs> and the, yeah, and they, they said, look, it, it is a hate crime. And um, and I just said, look, you know, I'm, I'm not going to waste your time by getting you go after a Twitter troll with three followers who's, you know, said something about my English background. Um, but, but you know, we talk about Scotland being progressive, but there is a dark underbelly. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon always points to the fact that we don't vote for the hard right in Scotland. There's the UKIP and the Brexit party don't do well in elections, outside perhaps of the, the European elections when we yeah. had them. Um, but that's because they... SNP have done something as a nationalist movement, which um, which is very clever. They talk left and they've been wear the clothes of progressive politics, but they still attracted a very small but very vocal minority of xenophobes. And and I you know I use that word advisedly because remember when Nicola Sturgeon sort of hinted that she might consider closing the English border. Then she had those, these wilder outriders going down to Gretna and blockading it and saying, go home, plague carriers to the English, to English motorists. Um, and, and so we do, we don't have a moral superiority. Our moral compass isn't different from anybody else. And the people that would be voting Brexit or uh, UKIP are actually voting SNP. And just because the anti-English hate crime thing is, is quite interesting because I've got quite a, I don't know, maybe it's, I just... Don't sometimes take it as seriously as it should. But I remember the national front page on the day of the England-Italy final with Mancini done up as Braveheart. I had friends you call of mine. Nation- I had friends you, of mine. You called it the National Front. I don't think. I think you better. Oh, the national, oh, the national front page. Yes, yeah, sorry, the national. Oh, sorry. Comma front sorry, page. I t- <laughs> no, no, I wasn't trying I didn't to do want anything. You to get into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry. The, the, the front action. of the national newspaper. Yeah. It's Mancini done up as uh, Braveheart. Friends of mine who are pro-independence on social media were horrified by it, and I kind of thought it's a. You know, it's a bit of fun. I mean, maybe as a football fan, I've got a stronger gut for this. And maybe being English, you think, well, you know, compared to some of the stuff I've seen, it feels fairly timid. But um, it is anti-English hate a serious problem in Scotland or is it confined to a few? You know, not that it shouldn't be taken seriously. And obviously, you know, I, I've probably never really been the, the victim of the really full-blooded stuff. But um, is, it a, is it a bigger deal that you think than, than perhaps we, we cover? So I, th- I I don't I don't think it's that big a deal. I mean it exists. There's no question about it. But but listen, there are minorities who have it far worse than than me as an, an a born politician. I mean you know we've still got problems with anti-Semitism. We've still got massive Islamophobia. Um. So so it would that is those two those particular things are in a different league. I mean there is a mild anti-English sentiment. There's no question about it. And I I think you're right. The Mancini stuff on the front page of the National was just a bit of fun. I mean, they are many things in terms of as a newspaper and they are the sock puppet for the government, but they are not xenophobes and they're not anti-English. Um, and, but yeah, the, there is, I don't want to overplay that. That's really important. It exists and it exists for me, but, but I'm, I, I don't suffer in any way the kind of racism that some of my friends from the Islamic community or the Jewish community suffer. And it's not the first time that the police have knocked on your door. I mean, it sounds like they were trying to be helpful this time, but you've been investigated a couple of times. That's right. Yes. And all thanks to our friends in the SNP. 
I mean, it, it says a lot about our democracy that when the SN, the governing party lose an election that they were expected to win, they ex, they automatically assume you've cheated. And they've not just done it to me, they've done it to lots of people. And by that, I mean, they, they throw your election expenses to the Electoral Commission and to the police. Um, and the police aren't get really geared up to uh, know how to investigate. So it takes a long time for them to learn what election law looks like. I mean, in one of those occasions, because there was big delays and lots of other things going on for the police, one of those investigations lasted 27 months. And if you consider that, you know, it, was, it wasn't because they were doing lots of research. They just needed to, you know, they, they needed to get in, um, educated as to what they should be looking for. They then needed to go through line by line these very detailed accounts. They needed to understand the, the electoral guidance and the rest of it. Um, and they, they found in all those cases and in those two cases, and, and it wasn't it's not just the police, ethical standards as well and other things, that there's no case to answer. And I think it's a really depressing reality of Scottish politics that um, a tool of electoral warfare um, wastes police time in such a criminal way. It is a criminal way, because if you think about the 27 months the police had my case on, uh, were looking at it and discovering that there was no case to answer, um, that was 27 months that they could have been doing other things and actually fighting real criminals. So you've been under two police investigations, three electoral commission investigations and 14 ethical standards commission investigations. Now, absolutely, yeah. when you say this is by the SNP, is this Nicola Sturgeon reporting you or is it just a, any party member anywhere or a supporter of the party can just refer you and that's enough? So, um, so I know for a fact that the um, electoral commission investigations and the um, police investigations were from a local branch of the SNP. Um, but in terms of the uh, ethical standards, um, you're kind of given a wh when you're told about the what the complaint is, um, it's very obvious that it is um, from a, a surrogate or a, um, a member of the SNP because it's about something you said which challenges the government on something or um, makes it, you know if I if I make an allegation about. The, SN, the way the SNP are doing things or whatever, you know, and, and people don't like it. That's the sort of thing. And they, it's a trigger mechanism. It's a hair trigger. And it's designed to take you off task, to distract you and to um, to hurt your confidence. And it is, it is rattling to, to be the subject of an investigation. But I've learned to channel that. I'm not just going to leave my country to these guys who, um, you know, are using dirty tricks to try and... Un unsettle the opposition i just don't think that's fair because it's it's tricky isn't it because members of the public might go this guy's getting investigated all the time there must be something in this well i i like to think that because i've been invested i'm one of the most investigated politicians in scotland and i have my i have an absolutely clean sheet that actually you know you could have you can have faith that i am squeaky clean as they <laughs> say man so yeah i mean people can think what they like but i i you know, I think that the SNP were hoping that by the war of attrition, that drip by drip feeding uh, of misinformation about me, about suspicion about me, might have up upset um, my chances for re-election. But then I was returned with more votes than any other candidate in the history of the parliament. So it didn't work. And have you ever taken up with Nicola Sturgeon or, or other leading SNP figures? Have you ever said, why is your party keep getting me investigated? This is getting silly now. No, no. I mean, I look. I, I do what I, I need to do to answer the questions put to me, um, and then I just get on with the day job. I'm I'm not going to engage in that. I'm not going to give them the satisfaction of of suggesting 
I'm unsettled or rattled or it's taking me off task. I've got a sign up in the office, which uh, which says, congratulations, everyone. This office has gone zero days without referral to the Ethical Standards Commission by the SNP. Well, like that sign at the end of the Simpsons. Safety. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man. So, I mean, that's really difficult. I mean, is that a typical experience or have you been particularly targeted? Um, no, I, I mean, I think I've, one of, I've got one of the highest records like that but um and i'm, I'm not proud of that I, i'm just i'm sad to have been part of that colossal waste of time for these decent people in public office and in the police um but no i i know for example jackie bailey murder fraser anyone who's effective at needling the snp on twitter or in parliament um gets the same treatment and we're, we're thinking about getting jackets printed up actually so you and jackie bailey who is uh prominent Scottish Labour uh, MSP. She's been on this podcast. You were both on the committee that cross-examined uh, Alex Salmond and, and Nicola Sturgeon. I mean, it, it was excruciating to watch. It can't have been a, a particularly positive thing to have been involved in. Oh, Matt, it was utterly grim. It was utterly grim. If I'd known then what I know now about how that committee would be, I would have asked for somebody else to have been assigned because it was... It just took up loads of time. It took up lo- lots of oxygen. It was a subject of intrigue and innuendo. And it felt at times we were refereeing a war, a civil war within the SNP between these two titans of its history, the, Alex Hammond and Nicholas Sturgeon. And, and actually, I don't necessarily think we got to a satisfactory conclusion. I'm not sure party politicians should ever have been charged with its investigation because obviously it became partly political at times. But... Um, but I think also at the very heart of this, we did a massive disservice to the women who had the bravery to come forward and report those allegations in the first place. Um, and I think, you know, for, for every investigation, because we weren't the only investigation, for every time it was in the news, it must have reopened those old wounds for those, those brave women. Uh, it was just, it was a dark period, no question. Do you think the full truth will ever, will ever come out? Hard to say, I mean, you know, I I think there was, we talked among the opposition members about whether we should have publicly called for a judge-led inquiry and the rest of it. But I think we all kind of felt that this is, this may get to the truth ultimately, but it will only do so at colossal harm to the women at the heart of this. And, and it was, you know, by then there was so much kind of heat about and and smoke around the whole thing. I think we, we just decided to let it lie. We, if you read the report of the committee, it's a substantial body of work and there's a lot of learning and I'm concerned that, that we've heard nothing of what the government is gonna do in terms of picking up that learning. Um, but I, I think, it, you know, if, if complainers, and I'm in touch with um, a couple of the complainers privately who, um, I've been supporting in, in different ways. And, um, you know, if they came to me and said, no, I, I really want justice here and I want to, to push for the truth, then then I, I might think differently. But I don't get the sense that that would be in their interest at all. Your life could have been very, very different. You may not have ended up in politics at all. You could have been a kind of James Bond figure. Yeah. <laughs> because you were approached by SIS, effectively MI6, by a tutor at university. So... There was a tutor at your uni who was involved in the intelligence services. That is correct. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was it was kind of bizarre. On the day of my graduation, I met this tutor and he said, you're going to get a letter and um, you're not necessarily going to understand it. But come It's from Police Scotland. You're under investigation. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office asking me to apply for 
diplomatic service beyond the normal channels of recruitment. And I went to see him and, and, um, and he said, yeah, I'm going to talk to you about it. I'm not a spy, but I do do work for an organization called SIS. And it's my job to pick out um, potential candidates. And I said, but do you, have we met? <laughs> I can't keep a secret. I, and he's, and I've, I would have a column in the things in the Guardian saying things I know, you know, because I'm just I'm, I'm just a bit gregarious like that. He said, no, no, we, we, we like we don't want robots. We want people who make friends and and, and the rest of it. Um, yeah, and, and it was it was fascinating, and I, I thought about it, and, he, and I said, "What would it be like?" And he said, "Well, you'd be work potentially, you know, initially start working, stamping passports in an embassy overseas, um, uh, but you'd be tasked with with other jobs as well, like gathering information or making particular relationships and the rest of it." And it was fascinating. Um, and I, I said, "Can I ask anybody about it?" And he said, "You can talk to your dad about it, your, your parents about it." So I rang my dad. And he said, "Oh my goodness," he said. Your that means that your I've just realised your sister's godfather godfather must have been a spy because he was in the SAS, and then he went off to he went off to stamp passports in the, in the Turkish no embassy, in the British embassy in Turkey and we didn't understand why, and um, so I rang him and he said you can have a chat with him and he said well I'll talk to him but I wouldn't tell you anything to my dad but I'll talk to Alex, and it was that conversation that sort of consolidated my view that. I didn't want to do it because um, he said, yeah, the, you, you need to exploit relationships, which I was uncomfortable as well. And then I was like, well, would there ever be any time that I might be complicit in somebody's death? And well, this was more with the tutor actually. And there was this kind of silence and saying, well, 95% of the time, it's more about economic espionage and the rest of it, but 5% of the time. And, and, and it was clear then that I, it was not for me because as a Quaker, you know, that, that matters to me. I could not in all conscience, have a job which might lead to somebody's death or or involvement in a war or something like that but yeah it was it was exciting to be asked but then i, I mean i i'm not saying that the scottish lib dems are directly <laughs> involved in people's deaths but if you were to <laughs> form a coalition at holyrood that say supported mm-hmm. british involvement somewhere would, would that not would you not then be by definition um, the death of others well, I mean, that's one of the reasons I've picked my party is because I think... You'll never be in government, so you won't have to make that decision. <laughs> I will never be prime minister, so I will not have those powers. No, um, part of being my in my party is that we are a pluralist movement, is that we have, you know, strong values and strong policy, but there's not an expectation you have to subscribe to absolutely everything. For example, you know, it, it, rather embarrassingly in the 2019 election, I, I was doing a lot. Of, I was the director of our campaign in Scotland. So I was doing TV in Scotland almost every day for the party. Um, and I was asked about Joe Swinson and Trident. And they say, well, do you agree with them that we should, you wouldn't hesitate to press the button? And I was like, well, no, and, and I don't agree with my party on Trident. So, and I'm open about that, but that's, and they're okay with that because we're a pluralist movement and, for me, that's an issue of conscience, and they don't never ask me to to vote to renew Trident or anything like that. But at the same time, I understand my party's policy on it, and I will work within the party to to potentially change that in the future. The thing is, it sounds great, but in the end, parties do. There's a reason why you have a chief whip and you have a line is that you can't have total disunity. Um, now, I realise that in terms of a parliamentary group, in it, there's four or five. You so it's not you. It's not like you've got hundreds and hundreds of people to try and control. Um, but that only goes so far, doesn't it? Uh, on something like Trident, in the end, you'd have to come to a, a line that you would both agree with, or, or you'd have well, to resign. 
in in the Scottish, but I mean, that, I think I've got a luxury there because the Scottish Parliament has no power over Trident, and we have um, occasional votes about you know how nuclear missiles are moved around Scotland and the rest of it. Um, but it's not a policy area. I think we would need to to have a whip on. And actually, on something like that, you know, the party is very good on issues of conscience. And in the same way that I would never ask a, a colleague to vote to harm their constituents, um, I would you know, never ask them to vote against their conscience. And and I think that's one of the things I love about the party. Now, you may not have become um, James Bond, but you, you, you kind of, you, you have been a hero on occasions. You you resuscitated your daughter, Darcy, when she swallowed a 50 cent euro coin a few years ago, um, which I guess is like, makes you a hero of sorts, right? That's like a kind of Baywatch moment, if not a Bond moment. I mean, that must have been, we joke about it now, it must have been petrifying at the time. It didn't feel particularly heroic at the time. Um, it was it was really, it was awful. I mean, so we were, my wife and I were going to a fundraising event for the school and uh, she was already at the event. I was um, just about, uh, just handing over to the babysitter, the taxi literally pulling up. And there was this weird squawk from uh, the kitchen where my daughter was watching kids YouTube on uh, the computer. And, and I, she managed to choke out the words, I've swallowed a penny. And then she started to turn blue. And I remembered, you know, it was almost like time slowed down. And I, I felt it was weird because you think about that, you think you'd panic, but I just felt utterly calm and utterly focused. And suddenly some first aid training that I'd learned when I'd been um, learned to scuba dive 25 years ago, just popped into my head about what you do when an infant chokes. And I turned her, pulled her over my knee and opened the palm of my hand and gave her five slaps on the back. And she vomited and I, and then I heard her gasp. So she didn't bring out the penny, but I heard that she, she clearly shifted it and she was moving air again. Um, and uh, we dialed 99 and she had to have it surgically removed um, and the rest of it. And, and it was only after that, you know, it was only the day after that the, the sort of emotion of that, God, I can feel the emotion coming back right now, actually. Oh, um, it was only just, you know, the enormity of what could have happened and how lucky we'd been. And and I had, I mean, the the outpouring of love from across the, the parties. And I remember Nicola Sturgeon was really decent to me on, on the day as well. And and people right across the, the parliament were, were great and flood and floods of well-wishing um emails and the rest of it. And and lots of international attention at the internet, you know. We were in Das Bild in Germany, which quite a big magazine there. So I use that attention. I thought what was really interesting was a number of emails of people saying, I wouldn't have known what to do. Um, and I tried, so firstly, I, I set up a, a kind of cross-bite working group on first aid and with a view to getting a first aid strategy so that we get people um, access to training if they need it. And we also did five pop-up first aid training events in the constituency, which were really well attended. And people were just great at coming forward and saying, I would really want, I, I want to know how to do this. So, so I'm glad we managed to do something good with it. And I guess it gives you an emotional reason why you don't want Scotland to join the euro. Because it's a <laughs> dangerous currency. <laughs> it's a it dangerous. can kill if you're not careful. It's a dangerous. We actually have the 50 euro in a little medical specimen bottle on our mantelpiece as a reminder. <laughs> and, and Darcy's used this, Darcy's seven now, and she, she's used this as a reason to say that she only ever wants paper money. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, just cash us. That's why contactless is so good. Contactless, absolutely. But yeah. Oh man. I mean, that was how do you when you say surgically removed? What's so that they, 
so we were we were blue lighted to the sick kids um in and it was amazing so sick kids is on the other side of town from us but we were there in 11 minutes and um they sedated uh and basically and, and actually they said in, in previous times they they wouldn't have sedated her. They just would have wrapped her in a blanket to hold her steady and gone in with the forceps. And that would, have, but it was so distressing for kids. They had to put her under a general and go in with forceps and yank it out. Oh yeah. my God. It's so, I mean, it, it's petrifying to think. No, had you not heard her? Had you not been able to yeah. dislodge it? Yeah, I've thought many times. Yeah. I mean, oh. again, I'm in danger of breaking down here but the number of times i've thought about what might have happened you know i mean you can go mad thinking about yeah. things like that but uh, i'm just really glad and she is she's amazing and um she I mean, she all of our kids are amazing and and it it is just you know i count my lucky stars. i yeah. really do don't pop money in your mouth <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, or any is... other orifice <laughs> no, exactly <laughs> wow yeah I mean maybe you need to cover that in the course you know it gets to all sorts of places it's a key section of my leadership speech this, this afternoon actually no it's not I mean it's not I mean it's not the you know it's not the only time you know it just happens sometimes that not the only time that you've had to deal with quite a severe circumstance. I mean, arguably worse. Um, when you were the first responder at the scene of a suicide in the centre of Edinburgh a few years ago. I mean, that must have been, again, such a horrific thing to, yeah. to, to see. It, it was, yeah. Um, so I, I, I obviously trigger warning for anyone listening, but, but I was walking through the centre of town and this guy leapt off a tall building in the city centre and died on the pavement <sighs> beside me. I mean, right in the city... Oh this, my god! Just right beside me, probably three feet from me, and um, it was again, you know, that feeling of time slowing down, and you just like, what do you do? And so I immediately rang nine nine nine, and they said, well, can you do anything for him? And it was clear I couldn't. And I had it, but they, I still had an ambulance there ninety seconds later, and 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 then it, there was this weird thing of sort of crowd control where we were, you know, on Princess Street, so we're in this massive busy bustling street and people just wanting to walk down this pavement where this guy was and just trying to say look you, you don't want to go that way and just almost um just being being crowd control but there was a another person there actually who was just a couple of feet from me and she um her name is Janice and um she saw it too and we've actually funnily enough been reunited through the Samaritans actually because she's does a bit of work for them and I told my story to the, the, the sort of chief executive of the Samaritans in Scotland and he'd heard the same story from her and he put her, us in touch and we'd supported each other at the scene and we've supported each other since actually because um she had a much harder road back from it but I've had PTSD from it I've had you know for, for months after I had nightmares and um sort of trigger reflex when I heard noise overhead or anything like that and and it's but but again trying to channel it for something good um she and I've been working together to to um get more help to people who see terrible things and not just passers-by but emergency responders and emergency service workers we don't do enough to help our ambulance workers or our police forces who have to deal with that every single day. And I know um, there's a great guy who I work with in the constituency who um, has been very brave about it, about, you know, fishing people out of the river and, and the rest of it and just breaking down 
when he talks about it and just that that accumulative human cost of 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 dealing with that really traumatic stuff um is not dealt with and we we again we're still nowhere in terms of the support we can offer these people there are there are some amazing things in edinburgh like the river center which do offer post-traumatic help but a lot of people don't realize they're nursing that trauma and it comes out in very strange ways and actually we're all human we if you see something terrible like that you you need help yeah and it's uh, i guess if you're in the emergency services or the armed forces or stuff the, the public might think well you you know that's what you that's part of the job you know it doesn't make it any easier but like you're sort of prepared for it but if and those people obviously still need help but if you're just a passerby on you just happen to be walking down princess street on that day and you're not in the mindset of oh okay i'm about to attend a road traffic accident or, a sh- or whatever it is for it to just happen like that yeah and for you to have no preparation no sense that's about to happen i mean it's not something i've ever thought about before but obviously the there's people all over the world. Of course, there are people all over the world that have just, their lives have been changed by being present at a, a totally shocking event they had no prior warning of. Yeah, no, no, that's right. And and again, it comes to, I mean, you you sort of find yourself thinking, is this really happening? I thought, am I, is there a camera somewhere? Am I, am I on a set of something that's being filmed or is yeah. this some kind of prank thing? And I thought, well, what an awful prank that would be. And then you realise, oh my gosh, you look and you see the, you know, the brutal, visceral reality of, of the scene you're standing in and and you know you there's no preparation for it and it and it leaves it leaves a mark definitely it does leave a mark and yeah I, i'm just and also you you then haunted by the fact you know he landed three feet from me but what if he landed on me you know that kind of thing it's yeah it's it's pretty scary after after the fact and do you still talk about it now do you still have help um I don't, I mean, I got some counselling um, immediately after and, you know, I, I didn't need a lot of that. And and actually I've got a great network. My family, my wife in particular is, is a rock on which everything else is built. And um, I've had a lot of support from friends and family. Um, it still comes back to me. I'm not haunted by it. I, I don't think I've got PTSD anymore. Um, I'm not, I can still, I still walk that same path. You know, I, it's, it doesn't traumatise me. Um, but I guess, you know, I try and channel it and say, look, this happens to people every day. We're not doing enough to help them. And and, and more importantly, you know, I, I'm always struck and I do use this in Parliament in speeches that I had an, an ambulance 90 seconds after that guy landed. And um, but it occurs to me that had he walked into a doctor's surgery um, when he first started to feel unwell, mentally unwell and asked for help he could have waited nine months at least for any kind of first appointment. Um, And that shows, you know, we've got this terribly wrong that we're really geared up for physical trauma uh, in the health service. You can get, if your daughter fell off her bike, she'd be in plaster by the end of the day. But if she came to you with self-harming behavior, she joins the longest queue in the NHS. And that is a national scandal. There's no parity between mental and physical health in this country. Obviously you represent uh, uh, a seat in Edinburgh uh, this is we're, we're talking in August when some form of Edinburgh Festival is happening, but not uh, not on the scale that it usually is. Um, one of the groups of people that, that really benefits from from the uh, from the Edinburgh Festival is, uh, are landlords or people who sublet their apartments for astronomical amounts, uh, eye-watering <laughs> amounts uh, of money throughout the month. You have an Airbnb at the bottom of your garden. I mean, this must have been. <laughs> This must have been a terrible month for you not being able to monetize that square footage. 
So yes, <laughs> that's true. Um, we built a cabin when we were renovating the house so we didn't have to move out. And it was just lying empty for a long time. I'd, I'd spent a long time in the hospitality in, in industry as a student. Um, and we just thought, well, let's see how this works. And I, I really enjoy hosting people. Um, it, it's not, I'm, you know, I, I'm very open about it. I didn't need to declare the relationship with Airbnb on my register of interest, but I was insisted that I did because Parliament's about to start legislating on short-term lets. But the, the kind of problem that Airbnb represents to Edinburgh is not a cabin at the bottom of my garden or the, the spare room that a, a retired pensioner is letting out to supplement their income. It's these whole flat lets that are hollowing out communities um, and making neighbours' lives a misery every day and every night. Um, and, and I'm serious about getting real on that and getting tough on that. So, you know, I, I wear my relationship with Airbnb on my sleeve. I'm not ashamed of it. Um, but Not literally. You don't do... wear like an advert. <laughs> no. <laughs> like a, I've got patches. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, special rates. No, this is the... Um, this is something we've got to get tough on. No question about it, because it is harming Edinburgh. It's harming our communities. And it, it, and there is a housing crisis in Edinburgh. I, my cabin is not a solution to a housing crisis in Edinburgh. And do, when you have people come and say, do they go, oh, my God, you're that Lib Dem guy? Um, no. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe, that, uh, maybe, maybe I need to build my profile a bit more. Um, no, that's never happened. Um, and, and and actually, you know, I, I, I do it in a way that's very safe for my family. It's, you know, they, they never access our property. I don't actually meet a lot of the guests because I've, I've got a neat way of rigging it for self-entry. So, um, and, and actually at the moment, I'm not taking any more bookings. It's had quite a lot of attention. And, you know, I'm just I'm just thinking actually maybe, you know, it might be the time to, to stop doing it. But part of it is as much the enjoyment of that, that sort of hosting and meeting new people. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I worked as a manager hotel when I was a student, and uh, you know, it is is like it can be like faulty towers in in the best way, but you you have great experiences and you meet some lovely lovely people, and that's the principal driver for doing it. Yeah, I don't think you should stop doing it. I think it's cool. I mean, I gather most of the reviews are pretty positive. They well, I work hard. I, I like to give people a good experience, and you'd be very welcome to stay with us, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you can't beat a good Airbnb, so you, you shouldn't like. The answer isn't to take the good ones away, is it? That you... Well, thank you. Mate. I'm just a bit anxious that the national started showing photographs of my property on, on their great website. advert. Great advert. Great Come advert. Stay. It might attract people who are not necessarily enamoured with my brand of politics. <laughs> it's a cool thing to do. I mean, when you talk about the, because I was kind of joking, well, I wasn't joking about the cost of renting a flat during Edinburgh during the festival, because it makes London prices look uh, paltry. But when you talked about the effect on communities there then, I mean, obviously that's beyond the festival. So what is the problem? Well, there are big swathes of, the, of like central Edinburgh in particular, the old town and... Um, uh, in uh, and other bits as well which have been hollowed out you know which um, you have and you can see it when you're walking through the grass market or other parts of town that they've got these key boxes like a dozen key boxes on a 
buy an entry phone for people to let themselves in. Um, and if you're an owner occupier and you've been there for 30 years and you've got no neighbors anymore, but no, not only that, you've also got people arriving at all times of night nice. and sometimes having parties um, and it makes life a misery. And what is more, we have a massive housing shortage in this city, a massive housing shortage. And okay, this is the properties that let out on Airbnb may not come up for social rent if they were residential, but it does put a, a downward pressure on all other kinds of property type in the city. And it means, and I see this every week, that people come to my surgery who, are, who can't get a council house, who are bidding every Friday on Edindex, which is our council housing portal for properties. And they are finding themselves coming 40th or 50th in, in the list of people bidding for that. So there is a crisis in, in Edinburgh's housing market. And it's, it's like that all year round. Yeah, definitely. It's um, it, well, because if you if you've got a short term let over the festival, it's very difficult for you then to rent it out course, for yeah. the other sort of 10, 11 months of the year. So people just let it out. And Edinburgh's always an attractive city for people to come and visit. And there's always something going on. If it's not the festival, then there are other things which will attract people. Great, great exhibit exhibitions, great, um, you know, physical architectural triumphs and and museums and the rest of it so i would and i would always encourage people to come and visit and think about edinburgh as a destination but we need to get the balance right about the accommodation offer and our housing needs for the people who live here because the businesses of edinburgh the taxi drivers the the restaurants will say well don't put don't put off people coming you know this is one of edinburgh's great strengths is people love to come here and visit it's accessible uh, particularly to tourists across scotland and the uk if you start bringing in restrictions that doesn't just harm the landlords that harms curry houses italian restaurants shops and all the rest of it yeah exactly well i mean we're not closed to tourism at all uh, we just need to get that balance right and and i think you know you did you can see the market fluctuating um and as an airbnb host i can see it myself in terms of the fact that everyone suddenly had the same idea that they wanted to let a room or their property on airbnb and suddenly there was a glut and, and you, nobody was getting any booking. So it did start to, start to self-regulate. But at the same time, we still haven't got that balance right at all. Um, and we've, we've got to put the needs of residents here first, particularly those who are struggling or at risk from homelessness, because the, the, the number of B&Bs in the city which are occupied by people that the council is shelling out loads of money for to accommodate until they can find a more permanent solution to their needs is just dreadful. And it happens you know, all the time right across the city, thousands and thousands of people. Alex, there's so much more stuff we could talk about. I mean, I should be grateful that we've been on Zoom for an hour and you haven't sworn at me. <laughs> I was wondering if you, you'd get to this one. <laughs> so what you, I mean, I remember seeing the clip. It was in a, a video committee hearing with yeah. um, the SNP Minister Marie Todd and you said the F word. What exactly was it you said? Uh, well, am I allowed to say? Well, of course, no, yeah, yeah. Gonna... Well, I, I, I said F you, Marie. Um, although I sub-vocalised it, I didn't actually say it um, aloud, um, but I was on camera and I hold my hands up. I, you know, I could have tried to say I was saying something else, but that would have been a lie. Um, but that was not my finest hour. I apologised. I've apologised now five times, um, once to full parliament, then to the committee. I've written to the um, Marie herself. Um and I, uh, but most importantly, I had to apologise to my mum, who brought me up with better manners than that. Yes. And 
it was just, it was you know politics can get really heated and you can get really passionate about it and this was a but this isn't an excuse I shouldn't have sworn at her but it was in the context is important to me in that I, I felt the government was again backsliding on children's rights and delaying the implementation of the UN convention and the rights of the child implementation and 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 I just got really angry because the minister was trying to suggest that this is what children wanted and no children no children, child I know wants a delay to things that will improve their rights. So I just lost it. And I'm really sorry. And it's, I will make me a better po- person and a better politician for sure. Well, this is another sixth time you've apologized. So, um, yeah, sorry, sorry, again, everyone, <laughs> listeners, Marie, sorry. So what happened? Was it, was it just that you were saying it to yourself and because you were on Zoom, you hadn't muted your mic? Or did you yeah. want her to hear it? Or, or... No, no, no. She, no, I, I was saying it to myself. I was on yeah. mute. And it was it was generally genuinely somebody lip reading me and could see and captured the footage and put and, and it oh. went viral. And 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 you know I and I, it was genuinely not even under my breath. It was just as you yeah, sub vocalizing it. Yeah. And the number and and actually I you know my campaign team were worried that it might hurt me on in the in a re-election. But the only times it came up genuinely on the doors were people saying, "Well, at least you're honest about it." And I've done that loads of times in meetings on Zoom and and yeah. and I'm just it makes me think gosh I'm really glad I wasn't caught. And <laughs> and, and I you know I, like I say though I'm not trying to belittle it it was not my finest hour I am sorry about it. Um and particularly the time you've apologized. Uh, yeah, well particularly as as children and young people might actually have been watching it that's the thing I'm most ashamed as a youth worker of 19 years you know I've got a set better, better example than that. And did Marie Todd ex- uh, accept your apology? I think so. Um, I mean, we've we've worked together since. Um, so, and we we've, we've done TV together since, and we spoke quite in a quite a friendly manner in the green room. So, yeah, I hope we're, we're past that. Case closed. Um, Alex, good luck in your new role as as leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats. I mean, we we started off talking about how proud you must be, but it, you know, in politics, so much of it can be attritional. So much of it is, particularly for the Lib Dems, you know, you winning elections all the time it can be quite difficult you have to enjoy the days where where you have personal success so it, it must be a very special day for you I'm really excited Matt I, I'm, I'm very proud beyond words actually I mean I love my party it's been like a family to me for over 20 years and um yeah I, 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 I I'm in no doubt of the the challenge I face but I also you know there is a something about it which will make you just make makes me feel like I walk a little taller, that, that I need to rise to this challenge, that I'm walking in the footsteps of previous Lib Dem leaders, not just in Scotland, but in the UK, like Charles Kennedy, who is a mentor and friend to me. And that that is a massive bar to try and clear. But I'm up for that and I, I'm excited by it and I'm looking forward to it. Alex, thank you very much. Matt, thank you. Well, there you go. Alex Cole-Hamilton. It'd be fascinating to see whether his instincts uh, are, are right about where Scottish politics goes in the next five years before, you know, in the run-up to that next round of Hollywood elections. What happens to Scottish politics in the next four or five years? Uh, and whether some of those uh, currents start to change, whether, whether Scottish politics is in a different place, and indeed UK politics in the, in the next four or five years. And he has a heck of a job ahead of him. Um, and yes, the, the, those two moments that were, were very emotional to talk about, um, uh, two incredible moments, really, that um, 
he obviously handled very well, but nevertheless, a, a very difficult to talk about. And um, yes, just hard things to uh, to discuss, but um, it, just a really interesting take on politics in general uh, and, and being a Quaker and uh, all those other things. Uh, that was really, really uh, just a, fa- a fantastic political discussion and a reminder that we should periodically say that when... Um, when life has its more difficult moments, people in politics often do reach out to each other across party lines and across uh, the, the lines of constitutional debates. And uh, I, I know I mentioned that Holyrood event from time to time. It is so reassuring to see people getting on and enjoying each other's company. Now, of course, I of all people should know that. Uh, this show tells you that. But nevertheless, when you see it with your own eyes, you think, oh, actually... We can all get very animated and worried about these things. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't still get animated and concerned about the things that exercise us politically. Um, But we should also remember that sometimes those people who are uh, duking it out in TV debates or or on the parliament floor, um, we should also know that that there is a level of mutual respect there and they often like each other as people. And that is is just a, a calming, reassuring thing to know. So don't forget, you can get your tickets for Andy Burnham live at the Duchess Theatre. The political party returns its new fortnightly residency in the heart of London's glittering West End from Monday, the 27th of September with Andy Burnham. Leave an iTunes review and email us politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. The nerdiest place you've listened to this podcast. I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.